Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. I'd like to thank First National, our sponsors. I've got an exciting guest today on our show. It's Alan McKenzie, the president of TrioVest. Thanks for coming on, Alan. Thanks for having me, guys. So let's, you know, as always, I think we start with just sort of background. So maybe where did you start in real estate? Why did you get into real estate? Well, even though your listeners can't see me, and I know I look a lot younger than the story we'll uh, we'll talk about, but I've been doing this for 34 years now. Uh, I started when I was 19. I'm 53 now. As a summer student with C.B. Richard Ellis, then called Coldwell Banker, uh, I got a call from Susan McLaurin, who's now with Quadrill, to come and do some research. So see stories we've heard before where you literally walk around from office building to office building, floor to floor, and try to figure out who's in the building and how much space they have. Then you go back to your desk and look into the white pages and try to figure out what the phone number is, give them a call and see if they have a requirement. So I started there. As I say, 34 years ago, uh, and then at the time I was going... So you were six when you started? I was four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was doing that in my summers while I was attending University of Waterloo and the School of Urban and Regional Planning, faking my way through their hockey team in the first year as well until oh, I nice. had enough concussions that are still affecting me now, as I know you know. So I did that for three summers, and then um, they made a fatal mistake and hired me full-time, mm-hmm. and I wrote my last exam from 9 a.m. It's a good story for me anyway. At Waterloo, I rode it from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. the last day, and uh, I got in my car and I drove straight to CB's airport office, and I made my first phone call before one in the afternoon. Wow! <laughs> so that's no how break. Thing started. No, no break. break. I didn't want to break, uh, so I did that and uh, worked at CB for seven years under uh, Wally Pollock. There's a lot of names that went through CB during those years that have shown themselves through the industry, and uh, at that at that time, people like. Brian Spence, David Wright, Gary Morissuti, Frank Kamenzuli, my brother, who I think is still the longest standing CB employee, Scott McKenzie, who's still in their West office, he was there. So I, I, I became good friends with all these guys, worked there for seven years. And then I met my soon-to-be wife, and I got a phone call from a fellow by the name of Andy Winton, a headhunter, and he was trying to hire a job as a, a director of development and leasing for Mark Burrow Properties. My wife talked me into a stable paycheck as opposed to commission income. But really, I was trying to do... As a, a good wife would. She was smart. But I was trying to do a bit of a sidestep in order to advance my career uh, you know, on the ownership side. So did that for three years. We all got fired when uh, Ivanhoe bought, because I was doing the office and industrial side things of things there. And there were seven of us, I think, who got let go on the same day out in the Meadowvale office because they didn't need us anymore. And they were selling off all those assets. Smart move. Started then pretty soon after with, uh, with Monarch Developments. They were a public company on the, the TSX or TSE or whatever it was called at the time. And I came in as the vice president of development and leasing and started to run their retail group, which they had land. They had a lot of land at the time. So developed office buildings for them in the airport corporate center and Markham, did some shopping centers in Whitby and in, uh, in Burlington. And that went on for five years until they basically took themselves off the TSE and asked me to sell off all of our commercial properties and fire all the people that I had hired to build that great team. And then let yourself go. Well, no. In fact, what they said was, and we want you to come over to the condo division. Did you, was that exciting at the time or was that? Nobody builds condos. (laughs) Let's just say it was a little off path, right? (laughs) So I remember I I was finishing off selling the assets. I did go into into our senior executive's office and I said, I'm really not sure I want to be a condo guy. Maybe it was the biggest mistake I ever made. And I ended up leaving that company and starting my own. So it was uh, 2000, year 2000, I started uh, McKenzie Goulet with a partner at the time, Michael Goulet, who had, he had been in the industry for, you know, 30 years at that time. He's now retired, obviously. And uh, his previous life before he started his own consulting company, M. Goulet Consultants, was that he was the uh, senior vice president of real estate and insurance and a whole bunch of other things at Dilex stores. So he's an ex-retailer. And he's the, uh, the hardest boss I have ever had in my entire life. I learned more from him than I probably will for the rest of my life. And so we did that for 16 years. And the whole principle of that business, we call it MGI, was that we were providing advisory services to pension funds that didn't have one of two things. So they, they didn't have a portfolio of retail and they wanted to get into it and they had capital. 
or they had a portfolio, but they didn't have a platform and expertise. So ironically, much similar to what Trio Vest, where I work now, obviously, their principle of how their, uh, their client base is structured. Uh, and after that, uh, long story short, we were doing really, really well. I got a phone call from Steve Rollin, who's now the Senior Vice President of Asset Management and Business Development at TrioVest to grab a lunch with him on a Friday. And he brought along Vince Brown, our CEO. And I figured out at about the hour and 14 minute mark, plus or minus, that they wanted to start a conversation about mm. acquiring our, uh, our company. And, uh, and it took about nine or 10 months to convince me that I wanted to be an employee as opposed to an owner. Were um, you up for selling immediately? Or is that no, another uh, yeah. slow process? Well, it was, a, you know, what, what ended up happening is a great, great question because we weren't for sale. We weren't looking to sell ourselves. Things were going well. We had just diversified our client base. We were about to do another push for growth, you know, with these new clients and in some ancillary services that were adjacent to some of the spaces that we had already been working in and making uh, revenue from. So there were exciting times. But at the end of the day, the conversation that Vince and I had, which I think was uh, the most material part, and this is where, you know, human beings do come into business. We're not robots yet. It's not all AI yet, right? And so we had this conversation about if we do this sale or merger or whatever you want to call it, will the next five years of work life be better for the existing MGI people under a TrioVest banner doing the work there in that environment with those projects and those clients than it would be otherwise had we just stayed the course? And it took a little while to figure that one out, but I came to a complete conclusion that, no, I think this is going to be a better life for our people. And uh, I'm proud to say... Uh, they may say differently, but I think it's worked out very, very well. And, and leading up to that point as well, it's worth saying that two years prior to that was when my business partner, Michael Goulet, had decided to retire, right? He had done enough in business. He had accomplished everything. And he wanted to travel a little bit and take some time off, and that was fine. But what ended up happening for me was I lost my business partner, and it wasn't quite as fun. Yeah. And we collaborated on everything. We would change the direction of the company over lunch. You know, it was complete entrepreneurialism. It was nimbleness beyond belief. And it was really, really fun and exciting. So with him out of the picture, it wasn't that it was bad, but, you know, it's like you lose your spouse. And all of a sudden, as we're, we're going through all this hard work and we're turning things around and it's going well, I get this phone call. And uh, I no longer had to, you know, think too much about breaking up a partnership. It was more about, is this going to be a better world for our people? And as I say, so far, two and a half, it was January 21st, 2016. So a little over two and a half years ago, it's worked out pretty well. And then what's the, um, the Trio Vest story? Well, the Trio Vest is, it's an interesting story because we have to really go back 120 years from this year. Which where, is most of Canada's history. <laughs> well, and our parent company, well, they call themselves Coral now, but the family behind that company, the Mannix family out of Calgary, are very, very instrumental in building a lot of the infrastructure in Canada. They were in, you know, railroad construction and maintenance, still have a company called Loram Maintenance Away in the U.S. and, and somewhere abroad, some countries abroad as well, where they, they maintain rails. But they were big in building infrastructure, as I say, as railroads. What they did to expand their interest in real estate and beyond, so say a 15-year view out, was they bought Tonko Real Estate in the West. Uh, many of the listeners would, uh, would remember Tonko and Redcliffe here in, uh, in Toronto, and they merged the two companies together. They already had a private equity company called Balboa, thus TrioVest. It was those three companies that effectively came together that the name TrioVest uh, came from. And, uh, and they plugged forward, you know, merging the operations together and trying to grow the platform of third-party advisory. They did and still do, and they're still growing, you know, a, a balance sheet of, uh, of co-invest-owned real estate as well, commercial real estate, with aspirations to continue to co-invest you know, with our capital clients when required, when the opportunity suits us as well. So it's, a, it's an incredible uh, story. I think they're on, uh, Ron Mannix, if you're listening to this and I get this wrong, I apologize, but we're on fifth generation, I believe. Wow. You know, and fourth or fifth generation in the company and more generations coming up. So it's... it's and they're act active in the business. Very active in the business. The two sons, Stephen and Mike, are themselves owners of the company. Mike works inside of the company in our Calgary office and does a great job as senior vice president of asset management there for Western Canada. And good guys, great family. I call him Mr. Mannix, but, uh, but Ron, uh, who's their father, is, uh, is one of the most dynamic minds, compassionate people. You know how you know, we talk around the water cooler every once in a while about it's, it's the millennials who are the ones that are in innovation and, and sustainability and, and exponentialism. 
oh my goodness, this guy can spin circles around those guys talking in those areas. Um, and he's fascinating. So whenever I get a chance and it's too infrequent to sit down with him, I usually ask one question and we, we blow an hour away uh, in a heartbeat and his experiences and all the various businesses that he's worked in and all the people that he's met are invaluable to, uh, to hear and listen to. The primary business practice that you're involved in a trio of us, obviously sounds like there's a few different arms of the, uh, of the machine, uh, but asset management is your, is your day-to-day life. Is that uh, a correct statement? Well, if we back up, sorry to, to, to interrupt, but, but can we start with what are the different, because I mean, you mentioned the background was infrastructure. Is there any infrastructure involvement today in the business or maybe kind of give us a high level overview of what the different pillars or verticals look like of the business? Yeah, uh, so we're not in infrastructure right now. There are three lines of the business, and, and I run one of them. Okay, so the one that I run is Triovest Realty Advisors. And so that is a third-party advisory company that provides, and all of these people effectively report up to me today, as of today, investment advisory services, development services, both direct and oversight and management of. Asset management is one of the things, property management, leasing. We have sustainability department as well, an innovation group. So it's, it's full, it's wide-ranging and uh, full scope. We also have a company called Tree of Us Capital. Tree of Us Capital is, uh, is basically the, the arm of the company that deploys our house capital into the co-invests that we go into with our uh, larger pension fund clients. On the equity side. On the equity yeah. side. And then uh, the third company is, uh, is Tree of Us Properties, and that is the company that effectively manages the interests of those properties that are co-invested in. So then you know, go to your, your arm, and you said there's, it looks like I'm counting five of them, right? Investment development, asset management, some leasing, these are, uh, sustainability and innovation, I think you said as well. So I think I'm missing a few too. Uh, sure, but. okay, well, fair. <laughs> Somebody's assaulted uh, no back counting. in the office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did decathlon when I was in high school, so I got five more to go. Okay, <laughs> fair enough, sure. history, yeah. right? Where do you want to start with that? Maybe what are you most passionate about right now, or what's the most exciting component of it, or maybe we'd have to go through all of it? Well, there are changes going on in the industry in the third-party management service. When, and I'm going to go back just a little bit, not to bore the listeners, but when I did come over from MGI, my first job was to be president of the retail group because MGI was a retail-only entity for the 16 years that existed. So what we brought over to the retail group was you know, a culture of collaboration. It was a flat structure. There was really no work chart. Everybody's brains and their experiences were considered equal and even and just as valued. And we brought that culture over to the retail group. We created our own BHOG, you know, big, hairy, audacious goal, just simply for the retail group alone. And in that group, we did some demographic research that told us that we had 4.2 million people living in the trade areas of the existing shopping center portfolio managed by TrioVest. So we started having a conversation about the fact that, wow, you know, that's 11.1% of the entire Canadian population. So I asked them the rhetorical question, which was, you guys pick another job you can think of that you get to on a daily basis, touch the lives of 11.1% of the entire country's population. And of course, nobody could come up with an answer except for the prime minister. And nobody wanted to do that. (laughs) So uh, we we very quickly came together as a team on a mission with a long-term goal. And that was to, you know, properly uh, enhance the communities around the shopping centers not just drive the sales of the retailers and increase the value of the shopping centers, but literally dig ourselves into the lives of the human beings that live in those trade areas with the belief that the derivative out of that thinking and that behavior would be that we would increase sales for the retailers. If we increase sales for the retailers, they could pay our properties more rent. If we paid more rent, of course, then the value goes up. So we did that for um, nine months. Uh, It was a very engaged group. And then a fellow who worked for us at the time, Yves-André Godon from Montreal, who was our chief operating officer, decided to take on another role and not travel across Canada nearly as much and stay, uh, stay at home in, in Montreal with another company. And then uh, I'll tell this story, and when Vince Brown listens to this, he's going to laugh. But he comes into my office one day and he says, uh, we need to go for a walk. And I looked up at him, and I usually work about 200 miles an hour. So I look up at him, and I'm going, Vince, like, what do you mean going for a walk? This is what's going on in my mind, right? So we do go for a walk and the weather's not that great because it's in and around Christmas time. Long story short, we were musing on what next to do for the company now that Eve has decided to leave. And he asked me to consider if I'd become president of the overall organization. And my answer for him confused the heck out of him. 
I said, okay, well, let me just do the math on this. Basically, what you're asking me to do is go from 1, 2, 9, 22, 550. The look on his face was absolutely perfect. I wish I had taken a, a photo of it. He didn't know what I was talking about, but I have a personal purpose statement that I live by every day and I carry with me in my wallet, which is to ignite and support the pursuit of purpose in other people's lives. So what I was counting was the number of employees that I had the opportunity to positively affect their lives. So here's a little bit of a theme, right? This is where a retail group was trying to reach into. And it was a little bit driven by my own personal purpose. So I explained that to him and I said, so Vince, basically we have 22 people in the retail group and you're giving me you know, another 530 people. I'll take the job. Hmm. Of course he says, well, don't you want to know what it's all about or what the compensation plan is? I said, no, I'm, I'm good. I want the people. And so that's been a bit of my pursuit and my job is to, uh, to evolve the culture, the culture of collaboration and caring for each other and to have an obsession about enhancing the value of the assets. I'm sure we're going to talk about this as we go on in this podcast, but that was the conversion at the nine month mark from me being a retail guy to uh, getting back into office, industrial res and retail and and then stretching into investments, developments, asset management, property management, and leasing as well. So it's been, as I say, about 20 months now, and it's been quite the ride. And I would say we're 60 to 70% of the way through completing the vision that I've got for our cultural evolution, which at the end of the day is all about improving the lives of our employees, improving the lives of the tenants that are in our buildings, the people that live in our trade areas, and most importantly, the value of the assets that we deliver back to our owners. So this is, I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but I don't, I think it's interesting. So let's just go down it. What is, what kind of things have you done in the, in the 18 to 20 months to, to change the culture and, and uh, you know, not to say anything negative about the previous culture, but, but clearly there were, you, you felt there was a, a need for an enhancement or an improvement of the culture. So what was it that you identified and how did you kind of go about it? Because that's not an easy thing to do. It's not like you don't just snap your fingers and say, okay, we're going to be a different culture now. It was, so how have you gone about it, manipulating and, and massaging the, the company to get to the culture that you envision? Well, 20 months ago, I was 20 pounds lighter. <laughs> and way less gray hair. It's been a great ride. It really, uh, we started by setting ourselves a brand new strategic plan. And a part of that strategic plan was a brand new mission statement and vision statement. And I will contribute for three people and one group to the creation of our mission statement. And the one group was our retail group because many of the words, ideas, thoughts, and philosophies in the retail group's BHOG that I was talking about earlier found its way swimming over towards our mission statement. Stephen Mannix, who I spoke about before, was uh, the guy is incredibly brilliant, and he was and he's a great wordsmith as well. So, he, off the heels of the Beehog and the retail group, Vince Brown, myself, and Stephen spent probably a couple of weeks learning what a good mission statement looks like and trying to create words that would reflect the culture of the company, our commitment to our clients, and what we came up with was. You know, we create sustainable places that enhance communities and enrich relationships. Now, I say that really, really slowly because when I give my town halls around the country, which in the last 20 months, I think I've done 35 or 36 of them, I tend to spit it out too quick and everybody criticizes me for it. So I've got it memorized. But the words are, the words are uh, very, very important. The we is about collaboration. Create is real estate. That's what we do. We create value. You know, sustainability is not just about saving trees. It's about creating long-term value that is sustainable over a long period of time. So we create sustainable places. Uh, places are obviously real estate. And one of the conversations we have internally is that one of our main places and one of our most important places is actually the community of Triovest itself. So it's wonderful to improve the community at a big office building for the tenants. But if we're ignoring our own people, then we're not fulfilling our own mission, Right. So we create sustainable places that enhance communities. So enhancing is just obviously about enhancing the value of anything, right? Communities, we have to reach into the communities because if we can't positively affect the lives of people, then we haven't done our social part of sustainability. So we create sustainable places that enhance communities and enrich relationships. And those relationships obviously uh, are between ourselves and our clients. They are between ourselves and ourselves. They are with uh, our tenants, obviously, and as I say in the retail world, though, with the people that live in the trade areas that we rely on to shop at our shopping centers. And that set us on a course, and we repeated that over and over and over again. We painted that on the walls of all of our offices across the country 
Vince says that I'm the evangelizer of the uh, of the mission statement, which I probably am because I believe in it. I may I may have said it about 142,000 yeah, sure. times, probably. But but you, but you need that in order to affect uh, change. You need somebody. That's the, the it's the root, it. right? Nothing grows out of nothing grows without something being planted, and I guess that's really kind of the basis of your culture change. That's the basis of the culture change. And then a whole bunch of things found its way natural course-wise working off of that mission statement. So then if I just tangentially switch towards asset management for a minute, because you're asking about that later on. So how does that culture and that mindset off of our mission statement show up and how we attack the work that we do in asset management? So I'll answer that. So the, one of the first things that you know I was evangelizing, but we established was that Every one of our assets, and the mindset of the asset manager has to be this way. So every one of our assets is effectively a corporation all by itself. And I'll use the Center on Barton Shopping Center, which is one of the, the shopping centers we, uh, we manage on behalf of Imco. So that shopping center, like a normal corporation, has a product or a service. In this case, it's both. It has a marketplace, which in this case is its trade area, and it has competition. Which uh, city? It's in Hamilton, Hamilton okay. East Hamilton. Yeah. Okay. And so from, from that perspective... And if you think of that asset as a corporation with competition, what is that asset really trying to do? Or what does it need to do in order to enhance its value? Well, it needs to increase its market share. So with that, we created a, a six-pillar protocol on the mindset of our asset managers and what, they, has to, what they, they have to have and what it has to be in order to pursue market share for that asset. And they are in proper sequence and order as well. So number one is speed of delivery of your product or service to market. Number two is your pricing policy. Number three is your differentiation. Number four is innovation, meaningful innovation. Number five is the use of technology. And number six is talent management or smart hiring. So then we put all the retail people together. I'm just using that as an example. We put the retail team of 22 people together in a, in a boardroom and we would do that once a week on all of the assets, once a week per asset. And we would, uh, we'd hammer away at trying to find ways to get faster for the, get the asset faster. So offer turnarounds, lease turnarounds. How can somebody park faster? Just as an example, right? Because the speed of delivery of that asset against its competition is critical for its ability to, to compete. Then we'd look at the market from a pricing policy standpoint. You know, we created a, what I think is an innovative product. I'm sure we'll talk about it today called Asset Max, which is a value enhancement protocol. It's more than a protocol. It's really actually a mindset and a culture of how we pursue the enhancement of value. But it does come with a 450-point checklist to make sure that no stone is unturned in, in our groups. As I say, our groups, not our companies, not our individual asset manager a group of people thinking collaboratively and idea generating collaboratively come up with as we go through the process, created an innovation task force, which we now call the innovation council. And they assist the asset managers in the idea generation phase with the groups that we put together, uh, meaningful innovation. So of course we're like everybody else, we're researching prop tech, like there's no tomorrow and figuring out how we engage with prop tech. That's property technology, just to follow along with the, <laughs> with the, the, the lingo. Yeah, and we've concluded that for us, property technology means uh, where we need to focus on that is tenant engagement, whether it be a retail tenant or an office tenant or industrial tenant. But if property technology can intersect with improving the experience of a tenant, then that's where we really need to be. That's where we think the greatest value is. I'm not quite sure if you know, finding automated window washing machines or robots or whatever, which will probably end up taking over. I'm not really sure if that adds value to our tenants. So we focus in the tenant area. So with that, with that understanding for the asset managers that these assets are like businesses that compete, and these are the pillars that you need to focus on in order to improve the competitive nature of the asset itself, we set ourselves on a journey. So we overlap the culture and the mission statement on our way through pursuing value in those six pillars. And it's working really, really well. We've got some terrific examples on the retail side, uh, a couple of really good examples on the office side, and we're continuing. So we've been we've been kind of weaving around it a bit, but you know, while we're on the topic, why don't we talk about just what you're seeing in the retail market? Before we go there, let's just context that you, know, you guys are are nationwide. So so I know that makes it maybe the answer to the question a bit more challenging. But maybe pick a couple of different jurisdictions that you guys are in, and maybe make some comments about what you're seeing in the retail market. Of course, with all the online sales and Amazon, all that, there's been a lot of headwinds and 
you know, Rio can selling the majority of their their secondary market assets. So there are there seems to be some people that believe that that's an asset class that you know is, is kind of on the on the outside looking in. So what are you guys thinking, and how are you you know working you through the asset management process to continue to improve the quality and and you know what what kind of things are you seeing that you need to be focused on? Do you have nine hours? Yeah, well, I know, and I'm sorry that's a huge question, but maybe pick the things that are the most interesting. <laughs> I get asked this question sure. obviously a lot as it's a very popular thing and we do have a fairly significant retail portfolio it is across the country. And the answer I, I kind of give back recently and it's a bit of an irreverent one and I get some heads turned and whatnot. And, and this is from a person and a company who's managing on behalf of pension funds, shopping centers, many of which you would look at on a brochure and say, Oh my goodness, those are the ones that are going to die. Yet we've been able to add significant value to what people say would be the worst ones. I'll get to that in a minute. But what I do say is that thank goodness for online retailing as it relates to the bricks and mortar business. What it's done is online retailing is, is effectively a customer intimacy business offering, right? So, you know, you go online to order a pair of shoes, you design those shoes yourself, just using that as an example, right? So the color scheme, the logos, your initials, that is a, a customer intimacy a relationship that you're having online. What the shopping centers are figuring out, and let's hope that they're capitalized well enough to be able to invest properly to respond to this, but they're realizing that the shopping center offering is a product leadership offering. So in product leadership, you do need to have some proprietary offerings, You know, whether that be a retailer that is only in your shopping center versus any other shopping center, or offerings that the retailers inside of your shopping center are providing that are innovative that are uh, using technology in a different way to engage and differentiate that shopping center and that retailer against its competition. And that's exciting because the ones that are well capitalized are investing heavily both. And what's happened is this new relationship, and it's actually an old relationship that used to exist and it went away for years and years and years. I know this from Michael Goulet who started in the shopping center industry 40 years ago, but the relationship between the tenant and the landlord is becoming way more intimate now. So they realize they need each other, whereas 15 years ago, they were, they were in separation mode. And so the owners who understand product leadership are investing heavily into those areas so that the physical elements of the shopping center itself deliver something that's differentiated. People call it experiential. I call experiential one of 20 things they need to be doing. The retailers themselves understand that their bricks and mortar offerings also need to respond to product leadership. So they're getting innovative using technology as well. And as a result, it's a better offering that is differentiated significantly than the online shopping experience. And in many cases, especially the larger malls that are innovating and investing heavily in product leadership are, are seeing sales growth, even in Alberta, right? And we would think Alberta with its economic situation over the last few years, they, they would have been going down. And that's been driven by the competitive forces of online retailing. So in a lot of ways, on behalf of, in our case, the 4 million people that live inside of the trade areas, I'm excited about online retailing because it's forcing us to get better and it's forcing us to provide a better differentiated product leadership offering to those 4 million people. And with our retail group, then they can go to bed every night thinking that they've improved the lives of the people that 11.1% of the people that live inside of the trade areas of our shopping center. So these are exciting times. They're not easy. So one of the things that we've done in order to be able to respond to that properly is we've created a product for our asset managers, but in collaboration with our investment development, property management, leasing teams called Asset Max. And Asset Max is really two things. One is it's a 450-point checklist for the asset manager who is the leader, effectively the nominal owner of the property, if you will, to make sure that he or she doesn't let any rock unturned in the search for value. What's inefficient is if you leave that person in their office all by themselves going through that 450-point checklist searching for value, they're going to burn out and they're going to be limited to their own experiences and their own level of creativity. So what we've done is we've taken that 450-point checklist and given that to the asset manager and given the asset manager the responsibility for leading a collaborative larger group of people. And paired them with your innovation council to help work through different things they may do for that particular asset? An idea generation, right? Mm -hmm. So we, I'll just give you an example. We, um, we manage an office building in the airport corporate center, Mississauga. It's, uh, it's where Lowe's head office is and HP is there as well. Uh, it's owned by Greystone uh, Managed Investments. 
just this past Tuesday, so two days ago, we're recording this on a Thursday, by the way, our asset managers pulled together 22 people in our organization, right from building operators all the way up to me. And those 22 people were led by two or three, sorry, three people in our group, our uh, VP of Asset Management, Cyril Kybell, SVP, Steve Rollin, and our Vice President of Innovation, uh, Philippe Bernier. And those three people led a four-hour idea generation session there on the building, including building tours and whatnot, using the Asset Max checklist and the, uh, the culture of this collaboration and idea generation. And inside of a four-minute, yellow, sticky, fast-thinking exercise, we developed over 275 ideas to be then experimented with in order to try to find ways of tweaking value of that asset. And that is what Asset Max is. It's hard to do. It's hard to get engagement. But what's not hard is it's not hard to appreciate the value of the ideas that are coming from this uh, very diverse crowd with very different experiences. It's expensive time. So to get 22 people in a room from around the GTA focused on one asset for four hours, do the multiplier effect on that, mm -hmm. right? But you know what we're experiencing is, and this is the thing that I love, again, culturally speaking, I walked around the tables who were doing the, throwing the ideas on the, on the boards from the yellow stickies. And I realized very quickly that many of the ideas that seemed you know, very innovative, very different, I had never heard that idea before, were coming from the most unlikely sources. So it's almost in real estate, like the higher you get up in, our, in a hierarchy, the stupider you become, right? Because we get stuck in our ways and the way that we've been doing it for 30 years must be right. What was so inspiring was uh, you know, to listen to building operators, to listen to lease administrators come up with ideas. I said, man, I would never have come at it from that angle. And so we put that into a big melting pot. We give that back to the asset manager, the asset managers now to, you know, decipher all that information. And what they do is out of all those ideas, what did I say? 275 or so ideas. The first thing that they'll do is put them back in the buckets of market share, the pillars of market share. So the ideas that relate to speed go in one bucket Pricing policy going to another bucket, differentiation, use of technology, meaningful innovation, and smart hiring. And they go into their separate buckets. And what he ends up doing, in this case, it's Searle, so I say he, he'll go through and prioritize in his own opinion, which would be the ideas that would have the greatest likelihood of success in the shortest amount of time for the value enhancement of the asset. He'll then call us all back together again in a couple of months present this information and do another idea generation mm. session to refine those ideas. And okay, so one idea is, you know, let's take that outbuilding that's sitting there vacant right now and turn it into something else, just as an example. And he feels that maybe he can create a million dollars of net revenue from that asset that's right now worth nothing and sitting there doing nothing. And he'll pick that as a major priority. So we'll go back and attack that one issue as a group again. And you just do it over mm. and over and over and over and over again. And our experience is that we refine that process. It gets faster, obviously, and that's one of our competitive advantages being fast to market, obviously. And you know, we, so we've done this now for a number of our assets across the country, both on, on the office side and on the retail side. Two retail assets jump off the, uh, out of my mind right away where, sorry, three of them, where, again, these are, these are poster children of ones that weren't supposed to work. Taunton Gardens and Whitby for Canada Post. Vacant Target weren't having a lot of success. We threw asset max at this over the last year and a half, and it's going swimmingly well. Our vacancies are just being absorbed. We're, we're increasing density. We're backfilling the target store. Similar situation at Center on Barton for Emco I mentioned before. Vacant target. We're backfilling that quickly to the tune of about 160% of what the gross operating revenue was in that space before. For the first time, and some of the vacant plots that were on that property, we're now getting demand to build buildings from tenants, which is great. And then another one, which is one of the favorites of mine, is uh, Skyview Power Center. It's the traditional power center. This is right out of the magazine, the front cover photo, uh, in the northwest end of Edmonton. So it's Alberta Retail in Edmonton. And this, was, uh, this is the thing that was supposed to absolutely die. And we're managing that one on behalf of Greystone. But by throwing asset max at it, getting a whole bunch of innovative ideas, and giving those to our leasing team, it's changed the narrative that the leasing people can take back to the retail, the retail world and the retailers. So before, when it was on the bottom of their list of locations to choose because they couldn't figure out how the heck they were going to make money in sales, we've changed that narrative. And that was part of the innovative idea was to change the narrative to convince them that they can generate X dollars of sales, which they should pay us, you know, Y dollars of money for in, in the sense of, uh, in the case of rent, and just come to the property in the first place. 
And so again, you know, we've had some vacancies that have filled up and the NOI is going up, the value is going up. We've just uh, recently done another appraisal where, you know, the value got rewarded for the work that we've done. And we appreciate Greystone's support of these activities, these actions in that case as well. So retail is, retail is, it's interesting. I love it. It's a world in its space where I believe there's tremendous value creation. I'll just give you a, a little stat. So the inventory of shopping centers that are in Canada right now that exists over 100,000 square feet, half of it has been built since 1982. So in other words, it took 1,000, you know, 982 years to build half the inventory and whatever it is, 30 years since, 35 years uh, to double it, right? And, and much of that inventory was built to service, it was service retail, residential developments around Canada that were being built. And many, many, and this is with no disrespect to residential developers, because I worked for one and I did shopping centers for one being Monarch. But quite frankly, a lot of the people who were, built, were building that product, they were not retail developers first, they were residential developers first. In my personal opinion, a lot of mistakes were made along the way. But the trade areas are strong, they just need to be reformatted. And if you can buy them at the right price, and you guys are probably going to ask me a question later on about what would I buy, I think I'm leading you to my answer. <laughs> well, now you can't say that answer. Now you got to pick a different answer. <laughs> I'll be consistent. Yeah. So um, clearly, clearly, retail. Obviously, given your previous background and passion for it now, retail seems to be obviously the forefront of your mind. Uh, what about the asset classes you've been introduced to since your scope kind of uh, expanded? What are you seeing? Uh, it's exciting and. Any other asset class? Where does your heart lie? Well, I started in industrial. So going back to the story of uh, coming out of university, I started in industrial in the West End of Toronto, land sales, design builds, uh, industrial leasing. I evolved into the, uh, the office market, specifically in, uh, in office leasing in the West End of Toronto because I worked at CB's uh, West office. And then I got into the design build of office business with Mark Burrow, you know, on the lands that they own commercially as well. So I, I did commercial for, let's say, the first 15 years of, uh, of my career. And then I did that leap of faith moment where I, I agreed with Michael Goulet that I would go exclusively into retail because I saw a gap occurring in the, you know, the advisory part of, uh, of the business, uh, especially with a number of clients that really wanted retail. You know, our, our client mix when we had that company included people like Standard Life, Manulife, Butel Goodman, I think they were actually our first ever ever contract. Rob Pike hired us to look at one of his shopping centers and write a strategic plan for it. And then an interesting story, and I'm sorry if I'm going off path, but my mind does this. People who work with me know this. People who listen to the podcast know that we do this too. Yeah. <laughs> so it's your fault. Yeah. We got a call out of the blue one day from an American retail company that, well, we didn't know that. It was actually from uh, Mario Pora at Steichman Elliott, who runs their real estate group here in Toronto. And it was along the lines of, we have this company, you know, they're a retailer, they're thinking of moving to Canada. Can you come in and meet with us and do a little Q&A? So Michael Goulet had, and I went the next day, we had no idea what it was all about. And we were sitting there at the end of a boardroom table and the boardroom seemed like it was about, uh, you know, a football field long. And three, peoples with, three people at the other end with white button down shirts and khaki pants were sitting there and they didn't say a word. And Mario was asking us all the questions about all the research that we had done, which we could get into another topic there and go crazy, but don't bore your listeners. But we had some proprietary research we had done on properties, shopping centers are over 100,000 square feet that we saw as redevelopment potentials to house the expansion requirements of all the retailers at that time, because they were all expanding really crazy back uh, 10, 12 years ago. And so we did the Q&A. We didn't realize that we were actually being interviewed to represent a retailer coming out of the US into Canada. We had no clue until near the end of the meeting, one of the gentlemen sitting at the other end of the table asked a question. And as soon as he spoke, kind of figured out who he was because it sounded like this. You know, y'all tell me that you got this research here and we figured out right away these people were from North Carolina. That was not a North Carolina accent, by the way. But <laughs> yeah, it was a brutal attempt. Close enough. But Foghorn Leghorn, I think. Was I, <laughs> it might have been closer. I looked over at Michael and I kind of whispered under my breath said, it's Lowe's. And he goes, I know. And so uh, long story short, coming out of that meeting, which was very, very good, we didn't, again, realize we were being interviewed for, uh, for representing them, but Mario gave us a call the next day and said, we want to sit down and see if we can contract with you. What I wasn't able to tell them at the time was we had a confidential contract with Walmart in order to do exactly that, use our research of uh, shopping centers over 100,000 square feet in the GTA 
that were ripe for redevelopment in order to house some of their store expansion mm-hmm. uh, plans and programs on the infill basis. So, you know, those were sort of our client bases. We looked at Walmart and Lowe's, quite honestly, as capital sources. What they did with the land or the real estate after we bought it for them was not irrelevant to us. We cared and were concerned about it, but it was a bit secondary. It was more of an investment play. How did I get there? Well, before we go anywhere else, I w- I'd love to hear your opinion or, or maybe just opine on the recent announcement where Lowe's is now shutting down. I think it was 32 stores across the country. Maybe you're just going to talk about how that occurred and what market, what caused that, that issue. One of the guys came into my office that morning. My, my phone was going crazy. Computer was going crazy. One of the guys in our office came into, into my office that morning. He said, it's all your fault. <laughs> and what he was talking about was the organic growth program that we worked with uh, with Lowe's. I think we we completed 34 transactions, I believe, on behalf of Lowe's, ground leases and, and land purchases where they built their own buildings. And you can imagine, uh, that goes back 10, 12 years ago, 2007, so it's 12 years ago, 11, almost 12 years ago now. Nobody knew that they were going to make a purchase of Rona 10 years later mm-hmm. and that that brand new Lowe's store was going to sit in the same trade area as a Rona store. Okay. At the same time, you've got Home Depot growing, you've got Canadian Tire growing, that the competition was just getting saturated. It felt like anyway, from the outside looking in. So to me, uh, I think it's a real simple issue of, you know, the stores that are closing of the 29 in Canada, I believe 27 were Rona's. Many of them were probably impacted negatively by the new Lowe's stores that popped up next to them. Some might have been, and I don't know this, I've not talked to Lowe's directly about this uh, since these are just my, my gut feelings. Some of them might have just been underperforming stores. And let's face it, when you get to 500 and some odd stores like Rona, a very, very successful Canadian retail story, not their fault, but not every store performs perfectly, right? So you should go through a rationalization process every once in a while. And I think this is part combination of normal rationalization that should occur, which is uh, very healthy. It's like a forest fire, a mini forest fire. And the other is I'm sure that some of the Rona stores that were closed did have some new low stores overlapping in them that were uh, that were probably performing very well, but I don't know if that gives you an idea of my opinion. But yeah, I think it just sounds like it's just market forces, and I think you so. just, you know, you've got to readjust every once in a while to make sure you're you stay on track. Do you want to talk about what TrioVest is doing with some of the other asset classes? We've kind of been focusing on retail, but maybe uh, we kind of asked about the office and industrial space. How many offices do you have across the country? And, and maybe talk about different things you're attempting to do or are doing, and maybe if you are performing an asset max on, on office as well. We have nine offices across the country, 380 properties now, uh, just under and approaching $10 billion of assets under management, 550 people in those nine offices. You know, and on site in some of the assets that we work on as well. Quite frankly, I know that it's probably my fault for one reason or another. We've been talking a lot about retail, but retail is the smaller category in our portfolio against office and industrial. And so what are we doing? And yes, we have been using asset max on, uh, on office properties as well. Have you done uh, anything in the uh, Alberta market? With Asset Max? Yeah, yeah, office specifically. Yeah, two specific properties uh, in Alberta, an office building in, uh, in Calgary, which we're co-owners in, and an office, a very large office building, million square foot plus in Edmonton called ATB Place with Hoop. And we're going to be making a presentation to Hoop coming up very shortly with respect to some exciting plans that have been generated out of our collaborative thinking process, especially for the food court area. Because that market would require the most, call it innovation at this point in the, the cycle. Well, you do have some new competition with the ICE district and the office buildings and whatnot that have been there, right? We've got a unique product and we have some incredible people that work, you know, in our Edmonton market that are maybe some of our best innovative, creative thinkers. So they came to the table, you know, as our asset management. And that's, that's one, interestingly enough, where I mentioned Mike Mannix himself is an owner of, of the company, but he works inside of the company as well as SVP Asset Management. So that's one, and he has a fellow by the name of Richard Brazo that works for him. So the two of them have taken the group of people through an asset max collaboration process. And again, it's like a rinse cycle. You put your you put your clothes in every week, right? So you go through it over and over and over again, and you do it a different way so you can find out some different solutions. So yeah, we've been doing it with the office. It doesn't lend itself quite so much to industrial save and accept where there are intensification or development, residual development lands, right? So what can you do with that? So we have one property on Cleve Court here in the GTA with uh, Hydro-Quebec where there's a little bit of residual land. So we've taken ourselves through that process as well. And our development group, which came to the table as part of the collaboration, are 
doing their own idea generation right now in order to try to maximize the value on that. Industrial is the closest thing you're going to get to a commodity in the real estate business. I mean, if you were to sit around and try and think of 250 fresh ideas for industrial, that would be, that'd be much tougher. How about a warehouse? <laughs> yeah. Uh, what a warehouse. I think if you were asked Chris Holtvet of the hoop, that question, he would, uh, he'd be offended. <laughs> I think industrial is, is uh, it's, a, it's a micro business, right? So the issues that you're dealing with, there, there are a volume of them and they are thought of as commodities, but the levers that you can pull are just as dynamic, in my opinion, as an office building or a shopping center. And it has everything to do with logistics and you know, access, egress, heights. I could go through the whole thing. We're seeing a lot of mauling right now, like it's, industrial mauling. Right. Which is a unique asset class, and then they're demising the space, or yeah, demising the space, condo titling the assets, and then actually selling them off. Well, and the theory there is, uh, if if they're holding onto them, smaller space attracts higher rents, and you can drive value that way, obviously. And it's another way to monetize. Small business owners, small right. business owners like to own their own space. Yeah. Yep. So, no. To further answer your question, when when we uh, have our conversations, which we try to as frequently as possible with the majority of our clients about their investment appetite. What we try to do as far as our investment activities go is if the listeners can picture on a paper in front of them a Venn diagram where the top circle of three circles is available capital, the bottom right circle is core competencies, and the bottom left circle is availability of product, we find we're most successful for ourselves and for our clients when we tick all three of those circles off, right? So we do talk to our, our capital clients about their appetites frequently. We keep an investment matrix to make sure that we're up to speed on exactly what they want at any one time, and it changes. And sometimes when they tell you they want the color blue, and you bring them something red and they buy it, you're surprised, but you know you shouldn't be. But you try, you know, you try to stay focused on what they're focused on, and you hope that what they're focused on, and let's just say as an example, because it's very popular right now across uh, the country, is industrial, right? So industrial development, industrial repositionings, and, and IPP are all three of them. Our value-add and IPP are all three very, very um, popular asset classes. So we like that as well because we have extremely good core competencies to execute on those asset classes right across the country. Just ask Blair Sinclair, who's our EVP of Investments and Developments at West and all the work that he's doing for our clients, especially in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Prakash David, who's our EVP Investments Development, doing a lot of industrial development here in the GTA and more. And so he will go out searching, or those two guys will go out searching for product that aligns with the capital, aligns with our core competencies. So right now, what is very popular for us and what we're being asked to hunt for off and on market for most of our clients is industrial land for development, industrial value add, industrial IPP, office value add as well. The majority of the interest is in the major markets of Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal, Toronto, a little bit of Edmonton. We're happy to say, you know, as a Calgary-based company, that the capital interest going back into Alberta is real. It's not fake. The good news is that the bids and the asks are starting to merge a little bit closer together. You know, we see uh, the velocity of trades in Alberta and commercial real estate increasing in 2019 because of that. And the money that's coming back and being successful right now tends to be a little bit more entrepreneurial. And that's always the case when there's uh, you know first entrance back into marketplaces. But it's not just them. The institutions uh, you know, have, have now gotten past the, uh, the fear and the risk of what Alberta is going to look like. I think it's stabilizing a little bit. They've obviously had GDP growth that's performed very, very well. And that makes the conversation at the uh, investment committees inside of pension funds go a heck of a lot easier. So I think we'll see more and more institutional money move back into Alberta as well. On the topic of asset management, we did get a, a question from Twitter. We mentioned you're coming on the show, asked for questions. We got one from Jeffrey Thompson, it's at Jeff D. Thompson. It's kind of a broad question, but you know, if, you've got, if you've got a concise answer, that would be great. It's what do you see as the most essential skill experience for asset managers? How about for people wanting to break into asset management? Sorry, who is that from? At Jeffrey Thompson. Hey, Jeffrey. That's a big question. I think the best way that I can answer that is, in our shop, our asset managers, so, so I, I use our own asset managers as examples, obviously, right? In our shop, we ask our asset managers to act like they're owners. Now, they have fiduciary responsibilities, and of course, they can't go and make decisions all by themselves without clearing them with the owners in most cases. But what I mean by that is the best asset managers that we see are the ones that take on that accountability like they were an owner of the property themselves. So, you know, what would an owner do? How would they behave? Would an owner, 
you know, lose sleep in the middle of the night because they haven't solved an issue. Yes, they would. I expect our asset managers are losing sleep as well. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. That's their culture. In our case, we ask them to act like owners and be leaders. And so I know we're weaving this whole conversation together and it's coming back to asset max all over again, right? So we ask our asset managers to act like owners and be leaders of collaborative groups of people in order to, again, come up with the best ideas possible in order to maximize the likelihood of finding ways of enhancing the value of the asset. So I would say to aspiring asset managers, get your leadership skills going really, really quickly and learn that soft side of your, your skill sets. I think it's great if you can sit in front of a computer and run through your Argus models and do your spreadsheets and do your reporting. I think that's wonderful. The demands from our clients, they expect that. Those are table stakes. They're demanding more and more from us creative thinking, faster moving, collaboration, all the things that Asset Max is responding to. You know, what I say to our clients is, yeah, we knew that you were going to come and demand that. That's why we got out ahead of this, mm-hmm. you know, and in our case, uh, there are competing forces that are going on in asset management right now as well from a client standpoint. One is, you know, they have got their own requirements for reporting, you know, that are, that are very stringent and budgeting that's very stringent and whatnot. And, and oftentimes they'll come back and ask for more and more and more and more and more. And that's fine. We're happy to support and supply that. The problem is, on one hand, they want more of the reporting. On the other hand, they want us to be entrepreneurs. If I get our asset manager to act like entrepreneurs using asset management, I've got to create time and space for them to do that. So that's, you know, if you ask me what, the, what will change and what will be the interesting things in asset management over the next three to five years, I think that relationship between institutional-grade reporting and all the governance that goes with it, which has to be done, has to be put in balance with entrepreneurial approach to value enhancement. And it means that companies like ours are going to have to find ways ourselves internally to free up that capacity. So what are we doing about that? Well, this is where our innovation task force comes in. So our innovation task force right now is working on ways to create efficiencies inside of our budget reporting process, right? So right now we're at 25%. we got a goal of 50% by the end of next year. So that's on the budget preparation side because it is a massive endeavor every year and it, it, it's the biggest pain point for the most amount of people at TrioVest and probably you know, our competitors as well. So that's on the budget side. The other is on the reporting side. So we want to maintain the level of integrity and, and quality on the reporting side, but both of those elements take a whole bunch of time. We're trying to create innovative using technology ways of mechanizing both of those processes to free up capacity for asset managers and other people to dedicate that time and turn that time to value enhancement. Now, here's an interesting concept. If we do that, but we have an asset manager or a human being, and this comes back to the question on Twitter, if we have a human being that really cannot be a leader of the people in order to extract the value, we've just wasted all the work we did in creating the capacity by giving it to the wrong person. So that's why, you know, I do talk about smart hiring uh, being Clearly that asset manager is, is critical to the success of your business. Just for clarity, just so that I'm following along and maybe just so that in case listeners are thinking, when you're talking about budgeting and finding efficiency within the budgeting, that's for on a property by property basis for your clients. And how that's, engaged that's and how engaged then are you in that process? Like are are the clients kind of so is it open communication when you're when you're working through it, or do you kind of do it yourself and then present it to them at the end? Yeah, we do it ourselves and present it, but we're in constant communication with our clients, you know, on a, literally on a daily basis, especially with what I would call the material issues that come up on a daily basis on the assets. So There are usually no surprises by the time we get to uh, the annual budget presentations, which are starting right now with our clients. I think we probably have seven or eight of them. And actually, it's almost double because we do an East and then we do a West. And we have two different groups that present to the same company that have assets across the country, obviously, because we're national. So we start that process now. We finish that uh, by the end of the month hopefully get approval on the budgets. And these are for capital planning and all that sort of stuff and reinvestment. And then we go forward. So it's, it's done by ourselves but in collaboration and communication along the way through the process with the client, and then there's a formal presentation. I suspect, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I suspect in your industry you're finding people, developers, owners, are taking the asset management in-house. I think that's happening all across industries, even on a, on a financing side. Where we're, rather than going to mortgage brokers, they're getting the financing experts in-house on developers. They're getting the construction done in-house. Is that happening in the asset management side? And, and I'm going to assume the answer is yes. So then what are you doing to, to combat that? Uh, the answer is yes, but not with everybody, right? So uh, we we talk to some of our our, uh, our clients who are doing that, and 
quite frankly, I have a conversation internally with our people and, and I ask what I think is a rhetorical question, which is, how could you not have seen that coming? So we've lost some asset management business with some of our clients, but then you look at the assets themselves. And I think this is a rhetorical question for the audience. Brand new 200,000 square foot, 32 foot clear industrial building that's six months old, so brand new, has a 15 year lease with one AAA covenant that's sitting there. It's like, what value are we truly adding? Nicer landscaping. Nicer landscaping, you know, better grass cutting. So <laughs> I'm being a little facetious. Sure. There is value, obviously, but those are assets that, that are easier to, uh, to asset manage. But then I, I look at, you know, I look at complex office buildings with multiple tenancies and turnover profiles that are obviously very active and require a heck of a lot of attention. I look at shopping centers and whatnot. So the greater the complexity of the asset, especially on the tenant side, the greater the requirement for further expertise. And it's very expensive to hire high-end asset management expertise that has national abilities. So I still think there's a, a great business for asset management. You know, we're going after it from a scale perspective, so a one-stop shop. But I also think, and I, I learned this from, uh, from Blair McCready, who's, you know, uh, this was back in our days with Standard Life and we were working for him. Obviously now he's at Fiera. And we had these long conversations and debates because we were doing some asset management from them in my old days at uh, MGI. And he taught me a valuable lesson. And that was there's a difference between passive asset management and active asset management. There will always be business for active asset management, always. And so what does that look like? That's the companies like ourselves that come up with these asset max protocols and procedures and have track record of adding value. There will always be risk of internalization with passive asset management. It's just easier to do. So it's hard to find and hire the skill. It's expensive to hire that level of skill on the active stuff, especially in retail and office in-house. You have to hire them. You got to pay them salaries. You got to work in severances if it doesn't work out. You know, you got to pay their insurance plans. I could go on and on and on. And that's not a very, very liquid business model. Whereas if you have a contract with a company like TrioVest where there's, you have termination provisions in there, obviously we're covering our own overhead. I could go on and on. And we build the scale at our risk and it can be one phone call for 20 properties. You know, that model I don't think will ever go away. Are you finding a hybrid model where they may say, you know, for my, for these 20 assets, I'm going to manage for these 20 assets. I need more active management. Yes. And different tiered pricing, I assume. And it's. Yeah, do you want to talk about pricing? Maybe just uh, rather than ask the questions, you just kind of just describe in general how the, how the pricing works. Well, the pricing is designed in order to align interests. It's almost like a co-invest situation, right? So in, in asset management, we're paid a percentage of, of the rental income stream that comes in. And the more rent we drive, the more money we make. So we're completely aligned with our clients from that perspective. So obviously, it's been a long time since you started your company from scratch. It was a different market at the time. But if you were to start a brand new asset management company from scratch today in the current environment, what would you do or how would you structure it in order to be successful? Okay, so that's actually a fairly easy answer for an ex-entrepreneur, right? I would be focused on seven specific areas, so it's not like I haven't thought of this. <laughs> uh, but it is actually what we're, this is part of our cultural evolution at Tree of Us, is to become the company that I would choose to build. In that case, so number one is culture, culture, culture. It trumps everything. Uh, everybody's heard that saying before. And along with that is, uh, is mindset issues. So I would make sure that I, I hire entrepreneurial, fast-moving people who exhibit superior creative thinking skills, who are obviously collaborators. I think it's probably the 94th time I've used that term in the last hour, who are opportunistic in nature and focused on the business model itself. So these are characteristics of the human beings I'm really describing, right? But they're, they're focused on product leadership attributes, which again is um, in their minds, they value and they source and they create proprietary products that are of value to our clients that are unique and differentiated from our competition. They are, you know, database miners. That's the way the world is going and the ability to take that data and convert it into value for, uh, you know, for our clients and ourselves as well a focus, a mental focus on innovation and a company of people that are not afraid to market their differentiation and the special sauce that they, they have as individual human beings. They're, they have good high self-esteem. They're market-facing individuals. And I think the last thing, and I've used this term before, uh, you know, at the Tree of Us Retail Group with the BHOG, our big, hairy, audacious goal is that these human beings are purpose-based. Now, we're coming full circle here in this conversation, right? 
you know that, you know, my purpose statement is to ignite and support the pursuit of purpose in other people's lives. I love people who are focused on purpose. They just seem to give you that residual tertiary effort, energy, engagement, collaboration, joie de vie, celebration amongst each other's and with the clients as well on successes. And the, the people, so you ask me about what my company would look like and how I would design it. It's all about the people and I want to be with those people. And you guys shouldn't be at all surprised, but that's exactly what we've done here at TrioVest. So this year we're asking the question of, you know, of course, as we asked many other guests, if you were to invest in one asset class in what city, what would it be? But it's a particular interest to somebody as plugged into so many markets and asset classes as somebody in your role. So we're very interested to hear, you know, your answer to that question. So I'm going to make a couple of assumptions as I think about the answer. The assumptions is I'm worth a trillion dollars. Correct. I don't answer to anybody else. Correct. It's all, it's all liquid. I'm not advising a pension fund. No, this is your money. As much as you want to imagine you owning. This is going to sound odd, but the first part is I want to help the Alberta economy. Okay. So I'm going to Alberta and I'm investing in Alberta because they have given this country so much prosperity as a province over the years and are still doing that. I think political statement are not being respected appropriately by our federal government right now as a result of differing opinions. So I would invest in Alberta. Right now, I would be, I'd be opportunistic and I'd be looking for a place. Again, I talked about that Venn diagram to the listeners where there's capital. So I would be the capital. Mm-hmm. There's lots of product in the retail world right now and more coming. And I'm lucky enough, fortunate enough to have really strong core competencies. And as you go shopping, pardon the pun, for retail product in Alberta, the spreads are nice. And there is value creation opportunity when you deploy those core competencies and skills to the assets and you can make a a really good, decent return. I like the answer. It's not just completely self-serving also to serve your country. Alan, I want to thank you for you for coming on today. This is obviously a, you know an area of expertise that Aaron and I don't have. I think those are probably the episodes that we enjoy most. Yeah, and I'm thinking here, I wish we could record for another hour, maybe just start a new one and we'll, we'll release two at the same time. I want to thank our listeners for listening. As always, if you enjoyed the episode, share it with a friend. I want to thank our sponsor, First National. And again, I want to thank our, our guest, Alan McKenzie. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.